This is a Sunday talk by Joel titled, To Practice or Not to Practice, recorded December 17th, 2000, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. The question was about the necessity of doing spiritual practices, and this is a very important question actually today, because there are teachers today who say things like, there's no need for spiritual practice. In fact, there's no need for any kind of seeking. Uh, they have slogans like, call off the search, stop seeking. Uh, in fact, that seeking and effort and all this business that we do in spiritual practices actually becomes an obstacle to our awakening, to our realization, to our enlightenment. So this is kind of uh, confusing then, because there are other teachers who say, oh no, you've got to practice meditation and uh, keep precepts and make inquiry and all this. So it is a very good question for us to consider. And most of these teachers today draw their teachings from these two schools of Hinduism and Buddhism. The Advaita or non-dual school of Hinduism and the Dzogchen, which means Great Perfection School of Tibetan Buddhism. So let me read you uh, what some of the great masters of these schools have said. Here's the 14th century Dzogchen master, Longchenpa. And he writes, Sought after truth is found by not seeking it. In the meditation which is great natural self-perfection, there is no need of modifications and transformations. Whatever arises is the great perfection. If you reside in the groundless state through detachment from mind, you will accomplish spontaneously and changelessly the inconceivable sovereignty. Inconceivable sovereignty is their uh, idiom for enlightenment. So that's interesting. He says, this truth you can't find by seeking. And he says, there's no need for any kind of modifications. That would be referring to getting to certain states in meditation or anything like that. You just reside in the groundless state. That is just in what uh, we would call consciousness itself. Now here's the 20th century Advaita teacher, Ramana Maharshi. Make no effort. Your effort is the bondage. All that is required to realize the self is to be still. What can be easier than that? Now, he's talking about self. This is in Hinduism, the self with a capital S, the Atman, your true self, not your ego self. And then we find these teachings in other mystical traditions. They're not just confined to uh, Hinduism or Buddhism. And so, for instance, here's the 13th century Christian mystic, Meister Eckhart. And he writes... Whoever is seeking God by ways is finding ways and losing God, who in ways is hidden. But whoever seeks for God without ways will find him as he is in himself. So these are all the same, basically the same teaching. So if this is true, why do we need all these arduous practices? Why do we need to meditate? Uh, and spend hours there watching our breath or concentrating on some object and getting all frustrated because it's difficult to do? Why do we need to make inquiry to really examine our, our thoughts, our emotions, our responses? Why do we need to practice moral precepts to make an effort to interrupt our behavior or change our behavior in any way? And why do we need to do devotional practices like prayer in the heart and so forth? So, uh, if this is true, maybe this is a shortcut to enlightenment. So, maybe we should try it. See, I'm a great believer, always when you read a teaching, to try it. So, what we're first going to do this morning is to do just that. We're just going to try to do what these teachers said. So, we're going to sit for five minutes in what I call effortless contemplation and simply be still, stop seeking, and realize our true nature. Okay? I'm going to ring the gong once to let us know we're beginning, and then I'll ring the gong twice to let us know when it's over. Now, don't get in any special meditation posture. You see, you're already trying to do something here. Just relax and sit there and realize your true nature. That's all. Okay? Here we go.
If you would like to follow our format, turn off your tape player and meditate. Then turn the tape back on for the remainder of the program, which immediately follows. Anybody realize their true nature? <laughs> yes, to some extent. But why now? What do you mean to some extent? Well, okay, well, I'll tell you what happened. I went into this with an image of what my true nature was, which is this big emptiness. And so during that time, I, I tried to um, kind of be aware of, of that emptiness in which everything was, else was showing up. You tried to be aware of that emptiness? Yeah. Well, you're making some kind of effort then. <laughs> well, you told me to do that. No, I didn't. <laughs> I said, stop seeking, just be still and realize your true nature. That's what I was trying to do, realize my true nature. <laughs> yes. Ah, but realize your true nature is not an instruction to do something. Well, I didn't have, I was still. You were? Yeah. I don't think you were very still. If you went in with an image... And then you were trying to hold on to this image. That's the best I could do. Okay, that's okay. We just we want to see what happened. Well, this isn't a, a question of judging whether it's good or bad. We just want to see what did happen. Yes, Kate. Well, what happened for me was uh, at first that I just felt really <clears throat> happy and safe. And I think it was because perhaps of the reminder to not try, that I don't have to try. <laughs> but then I noticed that I was starting to like recognize and name things. Mm -hmm. So anyway, I got thinking about it. Uh -huh. But it was very comfortable anyway. I enjoyed it. But it, you weren't really still. No, and I reminded myself of that. But there again, you know, I was aware that, that, that I was having to say, oh yeah, be still. Yeah. The point about realizing your true nature is that, as you said, you were very happy to begin with. But the, did the happiness last? Well, yeah. <laughs> okay. If the happiness lasts, there's really no need to do any more practices. The whole point of spiritual practice is to attain happiness. So anybody who's happy, I don't know why they'd want to do any spiritual practice. Except to be there. Except to be there. To be there. To, to be there. To not be distracted. Oh, but wait a minute. We're talking about happiness that whether you're distracted or not is always there yeah so it's not only a happiness when you're not distracted i mean you're not necessarily noticing it i guess ah not, well that's okay still if you're not being still you might not be noticing it you might be busy and distracted but this point about realization is the testimony of the mystics that it is possible to realize something that then you will be satisfied with everything all the time forever so that's what we're talking about here so, anybody else? Yes. Uh, okay, Joe, I want to ask you, as uh, an enlightened person, yes. could you realize your true self whenever you decide to do No. There is no self <laughs> to realize. <laughs> That's one of the paradoxes of the realization. No, but I'm, I'm serious. There are some practices I cannot do, like this practice. It's just like... Uh, oh, oh, because you don't can, have Can self. you sit down right now? Yeah. If I give you the command to sit down, can you sit down? Oh, oh, because you're already there, you mean? Well, <laughs> but there's no you to be there. But in a crude way, you could say that. Okay, so okay, so nobody who is enlightened would be doing this because they're in all the time. They're, they're enlightened. Well, I don't want to get too far off from that. Right. Then the mind you see is seeking here. The mind seeking to know what it's like to be enlightened and all that. That's another form of effort and seeking and searching. But all these teachers are saying, call off that search. You see what I'm talking about here? 
When Ramana Maharshi says, be still, he's not just talking about the body being still. The body being still is relatively easy to attain. What we're really talking about is attention becoming still. Attention becoming still. Now, attention is an interesting uh, faculty, if we want to call it that. It's not quite the same as thought. Let's take just a moment to explore this. What is attention? For instance, let's say you are doing your taxes. Tax time is coming up. You're concentrated on your taxes. You're doing your taxes. And there's a big, loud, crashing sound out in the street. Your attention flies to that sound. It leaves the task you are doing and goes to that sound without thought. And if you watch carefully, particularly you can see this in these more dramatic moments or incidences, thought comes next. The attention doesn't know what the sound is. Then the thought arises. What was that? And then maybe you identify it because you remember other sounds like that you heard and you say, oh, that was a car crash. Or maybe you don't know yet and you have to go get up and look out the window and then you see this car smashed into a tree and then the thought comes in and says, oh, that was a car crash. So attention is something different from thought. This is very important here. So your attention could be at rest with thoughts still going on. You said I'm driving at? So we don't want to mistake this instruction that Ramana Maharshi gives, be still, to mean that no thought is arising. Is attention moving to those thoughts is really the question. This instruction, be still, stop seeking, uh, don't make an effort, is really about attention becoming still. We can think of attention perhaps as a wave of awareness arising out of an ocean of awareness and then moving to this or to that. So what we're talking about is this wave of attention just receding back into the ocean. So all kinds of phenomena could be going on, but attention isn't seeking, isn't making any effort to understand, to label, to uh, fit the phenomenon into our previous ideas about what things are. Are we following this? There's still consciousness, but it's not going anywhere. It's not trying to grasp or understand. You see what I'm talking about? So attention can be still and you're aware of thoughts arising and dissolving. Certainly. Right, I think Yes. Yeah. You're aware of sounds, you're aware yeah. of sights, you're aware of thoughts. Okay, now the reason this is so important for attention to be still is when attention is still, like this wave, and recedes into the ocean of awareness, of which attention is made, attention is awareness, when it recedes into this ocean, that's when spiritual recognition, enlightenment, realization occurs. It is consciousness realizing consciousness. It's impossible to describe in our language because we have to split it up dualistically. Our normal way of experiencing things is subject-object. Oh, I, I am aware of that over there. I am over here. Subject-object. This is not a subject-object uh, form of knowledge. It is a, a non-dual recognition, but, the, but using this analogy, which admittedly is crude, you know, all analogies are going to eventually break down at some point, but it's like, as long as the awareness is moving around, it doesn't know where it comes from, we could put it that way. It loses track of the fact that it is this infinite, limitless ocean of consciousness. When it settles back into it, it says, oh, this is water, I'm water. No difference. You follow my analogy a little bit? I mean, just, okay. So, that is how enlightenment happens. 
That's why this is so important. And this is why these teachings are true teachings that these contemporary teachers give. When they say, really, the way realization happens is when there's no more seeking, when attention isn't moving around, when attention recedes back into the ocean of consciousness, and then there is the recognition of consciousness of itself. So, let's try this again. Now we know what it means to be still, at least we have a better idea what it means to be still, okay? That's the point of going through this uh, little explanation. Is everybody ready? Don't seek anything. Don't make any effort. Don't be searching. Don't be trying to figure this out. How could this be? You know what I mean? Just allow attention to be still. Just allow it to rest. Just on its own. If you leave it alone, it will go back to its ocean. Don't do anything. This is the thing. What we're talking about here, not physically. Just don't do anything mentally. Call off the search, is who Papaji, I think that's his. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yes, that. This sounds just like falling asleep. What? <laughs> Here's the mind trying to figure out what this is like. Anticipate what it's like. So, you see, we're going to find out if it's like falling asleep. Yes. I think that's a great point about falling asleep because when I try to fall asleep, I never fall asleep. I have to stop trying and just somehow let go and then I fall asleep. Uh huh. Well, that's not accidental. <laughs> right. So don't worry about it. If you fall asleep, you fall asleep. The instruction didn't say not to fall asleep here. All the instruction says is stop making an effort, stop seeking, stop looking, stop trying to figure out. Okay? Let's try it again. If you would like to follow our format, turn off your tape player and meditate, then turn the tape back on for the remainder of the program, which immediately follows. So what was your experience this time? I noticed that um, God, there was some occasional <coughs> thoughts or attention would turn to something and then I allowed it to get quieter, uh, to, to calm back down and it calmed more than, you know, it's been a long time, uh, really just allowing it. Uh, it got very, very quiet, and there was this great smile that was coming across my face that just, it, I have no idea what that was about, except that, of course, you know, that there was, there was this, um, like, behind the scenes, it was just wonderful happiness that, that, uh, yeah. And if you ever make an effort to figure out what that's about, you'll be screwed. <laughs> <laughs> yes? Um, I believe that, that that's what you call finding your bliss, where you can go into the oneness and, have, and absolutely nothing is there, but you feel so happy you don't want to leave. 
is is bliss. This is uh, manifest bliss. You're and you're absolutely right. And anybody who does a meditation uh, practice, particularly a concentration practice or a practice like this, will experience almost certainly bliss at a certain point. Uh, I say it's manifest bliss, and you just described the danger of it. That there is a subtle grasping onto the bliss. We say, oh, now I've gone into the oneness. Now I want to hold that. But just by the fact that it wasn't there before, and now you're experiencing it, means that that bliss itself is an impermanent state. That is not it. That is not consciousness itself. And people who practice particularly this kind of meditation, if they can easily experience bliss, are in danger of mistaking the bliss for realization. And it sets up a practice where they practice in order to attain the bliss. They're searching again. You see what I mean? They're not calling off the search. They're seeking that bliss. So they sit down with the meditation, and it's the seeking meditation. And then they find the bliss, and then they're very happy, and then the bliss starts to go, and then they're a little disappointed. A little unhappiness comes in. And then they want to go back and uh, experience it again and again. So really, on a spiritual plane, this is no different from what a heroin junkie does. (laughs) No, I'm serious. Do you know what I mean? A heroin junkie gets bodily bliss shooting up. And then it wears off, they go back, and they need another fix. Well, people can become spiritual junkies, bliss junkies in that sense. So, again, there's nothing wrong with the bliss arising. But when Ramana Maharshi says, be still, he means even when bliss is there, be still. Who else had some experience with this? Uh, over there, you haven't spoken. Oh, oh is that Robin? Oh, okay. <laughs> Um, for me, when I do this, it feels like getting really stupid, but it feels really good. Like, um, like there's nothing I know, and when I'm trying to know, I sometimes go into a terror or a panic. Like it's a box that way, but in not knowing, it just it's it's just such a relief uh-huh. to be there. Well, this is why the great Christian author titles his book "The Cloud of Unknowing," and the whole book is about entering the cloud of unknowing. And making your home there. That's the tricky part. Yes, Kate. Yeah, I'd like to share because my experience this time was different from the first time I spoke before. Um, There was stillness. um, And not specifically bliss or happiness or anything like that. It was very still. And at one point I started, there was... Fear arose, I, I, and when I named the fear, it was that I wouldn't know that everything would change and I wouldn't know how to live. And um, then it was more stillness, and but there was just that, it was there. I wasn't terribly afraid of it, but it was there. And did you feel that distracted you? Kind of, maybe it did distract me from that stillness in that I had, I got a little intellectual about it. You know, I went, uh, like I got... Uh, okay, now see, this is, this is why we're doing this practice, to explore the subtleties of what happens. Because, what we just said before, the mind, the intellectual mind, the thinking mind, can be thinking, and that does not necessarily mean that it's captured your attention. So just because your intellectual mind started thinking about it wouldn't necessarily mean that it would disturb the stillness. And I did feel that I stayed in the stillness and that I still feel that I'm in it. Okay, right now you still feel your own. Did anybody have trouble with this? Yes? I feel like there was a lot more effort than I realized, that I put more effort into everything. Being still, not being still, noticing there's a distraction, trying to pull back from being distracted, or just effort, 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 and then <coughs> effort to not be making effort, and it's just effort everywhere. I think, yeah, if you wait long enough, somebody uh, gives you the segue for you to go, be able to go on. So I already have this down here. So and I, I want to point this out, you see, you're not the only one. Because this was written, I don't know, uh, some, some six centuries ago, uh, 
for people like you who are around then and are still around today and will be around tomorrow, okay? <laughs> Otherwise, if it was just some idiosyncratic thing that only you had this problem, it would never appear in a teaching. Okay. Here's Zen Master Sen-san. When you try to stop activity to achieve passivity, your very effort fills you with activity. Did anybody find themselves trying to become still? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Okay. It's not as easy as it sounds, this thing. Don't just be still and realize yourself. And when you try to be still, oh, that's not true stillness. And those of you who were able to let go and allow and relax and who did feel that there was a difference and that uh, it was a relief, if not blissful, that's great. But continue to uh, observe and see how long that lasts. The thing is, our seeking and our searching and our efforts are not voluntary. We cannot choose to stop. We are all born into this world seeking and searching. And so when we try to apply our willpower and say, okay, I'm going to stop, that is already seeking. You see what I mean? <clears throat> so it's paradoxical here. But it really comes down to, though, is that this seeking and this searching goes on at gross levels and subtle levels. And often it happens so fast and at such a subliminal level, we're not even aware of it that it's going on. In that sense, it's kind of like a dream. In dreaming, we don't have a choice normally to stop dreaming or to dream or not to dream. And most of the time, we're not even aware that we are dreaming. It's an activity of the mind going on and we don't know what's going on when we're experiencing. This is why one of the most universal analogies that mystics have for our normal deluded state, it's like a dream. We are misperceiving the nature of our experience because we're not aware, we're not lucid. If we became lucid in the dream, we would say, oh, this is a dream. It doesn't mean the dream would disappear, but we, we would know what it was. And in, in our normal uh, experience of dreaming, it's mechanical. We are victims in the dream. But it's our own minds that are creating this, do you see? But it's not creating it at a conscious level. Nobody goes to sleep at night and chooses to have a nightmare. We don't choose the suffering and the seeking in our lives. We are born with it. And it is a cause and effect kind of conditioning our seeking, our searching, and then all the behaviors that grow out of that are conditioned behaviors, kind of like a bad habit. This is the meaning of, for instance, in the East, they talk about karma. Karma's conditioned behavior. What happened yesterday determines now what's going to happen today and what's going to happen tomorrow and so forth. It's the same thing, uh, not as sophisticated, but the same concept in, for instance, Christianity, of original sin. The fact that we sin, and sin here, uh, if we want to take it in the original Greek uh, meaning of the term, is an archery term, means to miss the mark, to constantly miss the mark, to not see what's truly going on, is the condition we're born into. We don't choose this. We don't choose to be deluded at that volitional level, that ego-volitional level. And we can't just suddenly choose not to be deluded. We can't just choose to call off the search and stop seeking. But what we can do is make an inquiry. We can start to observe how this mechanism works that deludes us. We can ask the question, what distracts me and why? And we are own laboratories. We go look and see what distracts us and why. So let's try this again. 
for those of you who are getting into it, so to speak, don't do anything different. But if you find you are distracted, then try to just know what it was. And why were you concerned about it? And if you are distracted, uh, at least try to note two or three things. Don't try to note every little thing that distracts you. You won't remember it. You'll just go crazy and you'll get even more distracted. But when you get at least somewhat calm, it becomes much easier. The distractions become clearer. When our minds are totally distracted, we don't even know we're being distracted. So just see if you can see, what is it that's distracting me? Kind of like what uh, Kate mentioned. Here she was, and then this fear arose. And then, then she got a little concerned about that. So that's an example of what I'm talking about. Okay? So we'll try this one more time. If you would like to follow our format, turn off your tape player and meditate, then turn the tape back on for the remainder of the program, which immediately follows. So if you were distracted, what distracted you? Well, I was a little uh, less relaxed this time because I was thinking about saying something. So. <laughs> but I noticed before in uh, the, the earlier meditation was that um, I've just been thinking about this a lot lately too, is that kind of internal critic in me, when I let go of that, then in a sense, there, there isn't really a problem. And, um, you know, I'm just able to enjoy things. Mm -hmm. And in a sense, it's always, it always seems to come down to that, that quality, that kind of internal criticism that something isn't quite right, that I want something, or, uh, you know, I'm not good enough or something. But I notice when I'm able to let go of that, you know, then... There's just an enjoyment of things. And then does that come back? The internal critic? Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. But you don't make it come back. It comes back on its own, right? Well, I mean, certainly it's a habit. I mean, it's an old habit. But it's one that I've you know, been struggling with to let go of. And uh, I think kind of, with some kind of focus, kind of make it go away. And, but then it, it does kind of, come back, but I mean, in a sense, I have something to do with it coming back, and that I'm kind of buying into it. Ah, very good. Mm -hmm. This, by the way, is a very good description of karma. People read lots of books about karma and think it's some sort of very mysterious cosmological principle operating in the universe and all that, and there are ideas about that, but from a point of view of practice, all that's irrelevant. We see karma right there. That habit, that coming back, the, the critic keeps coming back that Buddhists call it habit energy. And that's exactly what they're talking about. Nothing mysterious about it. You can see it in your own life. And you see, it causes you suffering. <clears throat> and that's a very important thing to notice. And it distracts you. It distracts your attention. As you said, you buy into it. You get caught up in it. You believe it, that it's true what the mind's saying. There's something wrong here, and I should be doing better, da-da-da-da-da, whatever. Yeah. Okay, go ahead. Oh, I just, what I noticed is that it really takes kind of active compassion on my part, you know, kind of uh, caring for myself in a, in a certain way that, um, in a way, kind of counteracts the effect of that internal critic. You know? Very good. One of the most universal kinds of practices is <clears throat> cultivate compassion. 
because just what you were saying, it interrupts that conditioning or it weakens that conditioning. So here we have a noticing, observing a cause of suffering, something that gets us distracted, and we have an antidote for it that works pretty good. Gives us at least a little bit more space. Takes the sting out of that. Who else noticed something? Yes. Um, started planning my son's uh, college <laughs> preparation. <laughs> <laughs> and he's applied for colleges and so come out with these He's got a little scholarship, but I started thinking about, well, how much money I still got to pay, and all these things I need to advise him to do. Thoughts about the future. Okay, great. So this is what we're trying to do. Be specific and concrete. What sorts of thoughts or whatever it is capture or distract our attention? We can only follow this instruction, be still, stop seeking, with an undistracted mind, with a mind that isn't distracted, with, a, with a, an attention that isn't distracted. Let's be, uh, try to be more precise. Did you want to say something, Mike? Um, yeah, I, I found it very interesting, particularly the last two sessions. There was a, a real settling, a real stillness, and a very subtle drifting into thought from that. I didn't even know the transition, but I'd almost call this, for me, it was a practice of ignorance in a different way of really ignoring with no effort what would arise and just well I think you've given the analogy before about the broad spotlight that doesn't focus on anything just sort of generally aware but not moving to any one thing not that I can keep that all the time but I was aware of that spots for that and that's good and this is again shows you something why we do kinds of practices that do require effort that develop states of clarity or, or, or calmness and so forth, because you can see things more clearly, and particularly what you can see more clearly is the mechanism that distracts you. But now I want to know, when you said your attention drifted off into thought, do you remember any of the particular content of those thoughts? What kind of thought captured your attention? Um, captured more... Uh... Shanghai in a, in a very subtle sense. I yes, wasn't okay. aware. Uh, it, it was it's more future about what's going on in the next few days or something like that. What's going to happen? Thinking about that, and then I saw that, and just and that was interesting too. The moment I saw it, it it, it was gone with, without much effort. It was back to that attention, but I couldn't really tell the difference in the feeling. I didn't notice a shift. It wasn't like something grabbed me, and I start my mind was really whirring as much working at a different level. Like too often I categorize them in one category, you know, I, right. one category or another. This was all so subtle that it was hard to, to differentiate it. So, but that, that's very interesting to uh, observe that. As I said, you know, this mechanism of delusion, the mechanism that keeps us distracted, has many layers and levels. And there are subtleties uh, that we are just really unaware of unless we can get attention to be at least still enough to become aware of what's going on, let alone trying to get a, the attention to totally recede back into the ocean of consciousness and have a big waking. Who else noticed something that... Yes? Mine was... Uh, I don't know if I was asleep or not, but mine was more like dreams. It wasn't, it wasn't thoughts about the future. It wasn't conscious thoughts. But, you know, when I, when I try to meditate, I try to focus, you know, on the breath. And, and I notice that I'm better able to do that. Well, this was just back to the, letting the mind do whatever it wanted right. to. You right. know, and I started making up all sorts of things. Okay, but that's what I'm interested in. What sorts of things, like fantasies or something, yeah. daydreams? What sort of daydream? Do you remember any of them? You know, I had little pieces of them. And uh, when I realized what was going on, I would try to do away with them. But, but uh, honestly, I don't remember. This is very important. Because when people get into uh, doing spiritual practices, particularly like meditation, and then distraction comes up right away, they want to get rid of it. But what we're doing here now is trying to make an inquiry, an investigation. So... 
what I asked you to begin with, and maybe my instruction wasn't clear, is what does distract you? Before you're such a, in a hurry to get rid of your delusion, you want to come to understand it. Do you see what I mean? So next time this happens, you want to then become aware of the dream. It's about the fate. It's just like dreaming when you wake up. But you want to like take a snapshot of it. What was I dreaming about? What was capturing my attention? What was occupying my interest? You see what I'm talking about? Yeah. I noticed this time before the distraction would continue on and on, and I'd be lost and pull myself back. This time when I was really focused on watching distraction, it would start to go, and then, you know, mainly into thought about, you know, what I need to do in the next couple of days or whatever. And then it would just be cut off because I was so, seemed so concentrated on watching it, then <laughs> I'd be back. This is a technique in uh, Tibetan Buddhism of if you're really bothered by thoughts, you look directly at them. And they call it looking at the shy maiden and the ideas, at least in this patriarchal society where the men are talking, the maidens would come and look and, you know, peek around. And if you look right at them, they disappear again. Mm -hmm. So looking directly at the distraction. But do you remember what the thought was? Which shy maiden came and... <laughs> Mainly just things I need to do. Future. You know, Thoughts yeah. about the future. List. Right. Okay. <laughs> That's good. Yes, Nirja. I had some sort of replaying memories from the past. Ah, very good. Yeah. One I remember was um, some time I spent with my parents last summer in Maine, and a specific event that happened there. And why were you interested in it? I have no idea. Although I'll be seeing my parents in a few days, so. Um, but I don't know why. Was it a pleasurable memory or? There were pieces of it that were really nice, mm -hmm. and then there was some concern about my father. Um, yeah. But it was, you know, it's about an hour's long experience that I was replaying. Ah, and right, in this little short time. Here. Yeah. Okay. So, but this is an interesting question. So, why should we be interested in that in these things? One more. Anybody else have uh, something that they noticed that distracted them? Well, in terms of why should we be interested, I think um, for me, well, the first, the first one, I was very relaxed and it was very nice, nothing special. Um, and then um, I forgot about the second time, but at some point I had the thought that I wanted to get a tape of this session. And I think maybe that played a role in the third time. The third time, it got quiet, and I can hear the tape rolling here. And so then that took me off since I dubbed the tapes into that whole process, and I was wondering, oh, I wonder what he does. With, he's going to edit out the meditation, but I wonder if he's going to edit out the dog gong and you know, that sort of thing. <laughs> and retrospectively... Um, I kind of wondered if the thought that I wanted a tape, you know, that I had a desire, made me tune into, took me off on that, what was kind of an idle thought thing, but took me off on that process rather than just hearing the tape and not paying, you know, attention to it. Could be. But we don't want to speculate and say, well, it probably was the case that I uh, had a desire for the tape then was the cause of my getting all involved in this, you know, speculation about what's going to happen to the tape and all that. I mean, we want to be able to see if that's the case or not, and we can't because here we are. I mean, we can't necessarily right away because our minds are so distracted. <laughs> I mean, one of the things you learn when you uh, ask these sorts of questions about yourself is you see how hard it is to answer them because it's all going so fast and you're so distracted. But in this case, uh, there are two things. There's desire for the tape. That's good. Okay, so you know why you're interested in that. You know, there was a desire for something. And the second was um, a questioning about how this is going to be done. We can put that as a desire to know how this process is going to unfold. Curiosity. Hmm? Idle curiosity. Well, is, I don't think it's so idle necessarily. This is what we want to investigate. If you begin to look into it, I'm going to now jump ahead and I'm going to tell you what other people who have looked into it have found. 
what mystics who have made study this for years, studied themselves for years. I don't mean study this in terms of books. And then you see, you test and see if this isn't true in your experience. And now we're going to run through the whole chain of conditioning, as it, it might be put, of what distracts us, why attention is constantly moving here, moving there, never really settles down, goes completely back into the ocean of consciousness and realizes what is truly going on. The first is, there is an identification of me, who I am, with a body-mind. This body and this mind. Roughly speaking, we draw a distinction around this body and this mind, and that's who I am, and then everything outside that is who you are, other. I and other, self and world, subject and object. And right there, we are in trouble, because this body-mind is impermanent, perishable. It's going to die. So without anything else, we already have suffering. We could call it existential suffering. Because we know what's going to happen ultimately in the future. We also have another form of suffering, which is more subtle, but can be very pronounced and at times in our lives becomes very pronounced. And that's loneliness and existential loneliness because we are separate. We are cut off. We are in here, and that's out there. And then we spend a lot of our lives trying to repair that uh, breach. Then, based on this inherent suffering, just in thinking that we are a separate self in a body-mind, or associated with a body-mind, that sets up a movement. A movement to escape suffering and find happiness. Basically, that's everybody's life project. No matter what they think happiness is or what they experience as suffering. So, uh, a stockbroker on Wall Street might think happiness is being able to sell off all your dot-coms before the market crashes. A uh, peasant in Vietnam may think happiness is owning 100 water buffaloes. So they're very different, but the point is, if we can get this or get that or do this or become this, we'll be happy. And if we can do that, it's just really the other side of escaping from suffering. And then this won't happen and this won't happen and this won't happen. We won't be left alone. We won't be despised. We won't get sick. Whatever it is that we experience as suffering. So this becomes the search of our lives. This is where all our seeking and searching comes from, where all our effort comes from. It is this fundamental search to find happiness, to escape suffering. And when we have that set up as our approach to life, then everything that arises in consciousness, whether it's a sensation, a sound, a sight, a thought, a feeling, an emotion, there's an immediate judgment. Now, this happens at a very subtle level. And the judgment is, do I like this? Or am I going to like it? Or do I not like it? Or is it indifferent? It doesn't affect me. Many things arise in consciousness that attention barely even moves towards. Because it just doesn't affect me. But if that judging mind says, ooh, I like this, then a desire arises, but beyond the desire, there's a movement to grasp it. And in that movement, of, we could say, of attention, everything else follows. Thought, emotions, body, mind. You see, it's going to set up a whole activity, a whole process here. It could be the opposite. It could be something we don't like, and attention goes to what we don't like just as strongly as it goes to what we do like. If you've ever had a toothache, Oh, that absorbs your attention. And it's hard to think about other things. So what we like and don't like, that's what absorbs our attention. What's neutral, attention sort of touches on and says, oh, that doesn't affect me, and it goes on. We can see the roots of this mechanism very clearly. It gets extremely complicated. Because then we have memories of what happened in the past when we encountered something we liked or didn't like and how that all played out? 
which is maybe something that's going on with you and your father or something. And then we have fantasies and scheming and planning and creating fictitious futures, how it might work out. And as all this arises from this fundamental basic division between I and other self and world, which is fictitious, it doesn't really exist, it's imaginary, from that fundamental delusion of self arises this whole complex mechanism, which really, if we look at it, we can see it is a story, a drama, in which I play the starring role. I and the hero or heroine of the story of I. And this is really what captivates our attention. We are totally absorbed in the story of I, of what's going to happen to me, what did happen to me, how I can make myself better, that little critic, do you know what I mean? What's wrong with me? How do others see me? There's a wonderful story that circulates among Hollywood people about actors. You meet an actor at a party. And they go on and on telling you about, you know, the, all the movies they've been in and what they're doing, the plans they have, and this and that. And they go on for half an hour and finally they stop and they say, enough talking about me. Let's talk about you. What did you think of me in my last picture? <laughs> That's the story of I. And this is not something we chose to do. And it's not something we can choose not to do. Call off the search means drop the story of I. That's what it means. Stop seeking means just drop the whole story of I. Let it go. So, what these modern day teachers say is true. Ultimately, realization depends on dropping the story of I. When that happens, when we can actually totally, completely drop the story of I, even at the subtlest levels, attention naturally goes back. It's got nothing to occupy. It's got nothing to be interested in. That story is gone. As long as there's even a little bit of this story going on, our mind's always returning to that. Our attention's always returning to that. So... What we can do, however, and this is kind of paradoxical, this is what um, Brian was talking about. In one way, we can't control any of this, but we're not totally at its mercy. We can begin to make space in our lives. We can come to understand the mechanism in our own case, how it actually unfolds, stitch by stitch, act by act, scene by scene. And then we can take steps to interrupt it, to ignore it, to just weaken it. This is what spiritual practices do. That is their function. Christmas is coming up. You watch, a wonderful time to do practice. You get something you're really excited about getting. It gives you a lot of pleasure, Christmas Eve or Christmas Day, whenever you open your presents. And then... What about three months later, or six months later, or a year later? If you are still excited about it, if you still love it, keep watching until the day it breaks. <laughs> and then you'll see the suffering that's set up. And this has to do with internal things, and even spiritual goodies. As someone mentioned, bliss. Oh, you, you learn actually you practice the way you can manifest this bliss, but it doesn't last. All ephemeral, all transitory. So one of the things spiritual practice like inquiry and meditation shows us directly in our own experience, this is futile, dummy, why are you doing it? It ain't going to work. That helps to weaken it. When we continue mindlessly playing the starring role in the story of I, the story gets stronger. We work up real attachments as our life unfolds to this way of being, to who we think we are, to material things, to people. 
And when we start to observe that this is all futile, it weakens those attachments. It weans us from them. And then also what spiritual practices do is start to show us that this character in the story of I, the central character, is fictitious. We go look for that I. And we start to discover I is not a thing. I is an activity. It is just that activity of thought creating the story and then being charged with all the emotions that the story gives rise to and that drive the story just like a movie or a play or a TV drama. We get sucked in the same way we get sucked into a good movie. We get captivated. We identify with that character, but there is no such character. It's light on a screen. The more we can see that, and we can begin to see that incrementally, oh, the less captivating the story becomes. If you turn on the television set and you saw people being shot to death and blown up, you thought you're watching a news show, and somebody comes on and says, oh, this is fiction, oh, not so interesting. This actually happened in radio in uh, the 30s. Orson Welles uh, did a docudrama, so to speak. It was presented as a newscast of a Martians invading the Earth, and they didn't bother to tell anybody this was fiction. And panic started to sweep the country, and some people committed suicide, and all sorts of chaos happened. And halfway through the show, they had to come and say, no, this is just fiction. It's okay. Well, our own observations of our own story of I, through spiritual practice, has the same effect. We stop taking ourselves so seriously. Then, you see, we don't have to make an effort to relax attention. It spontaneously relaxes. And finally... These practices, like devotional practices and so forth, they give us glimpses of another reality, another kind of happiness that we don't normally see because we're so wrapped up in the story of I, what I can get and what I am afraid of and so forth. And when we actually start to let that go a little bit, not be so interested, not take it so seriously, then we experience a kind of bliss that doesn't depend on getting something for Christmas or having somebody fall in love with you. It doesn't depend on anything outside. You actually described, when you were describing this, as like a smile in the background coming through. That smile is always there, but when we're focused on the, the movie, the story of I out here, we don't see anything in the background. It's like being in the movie theater, you don't see where the light is coming from. As long as you're glued to that movie screen, you don't know what's going on. If you start losing interest in the movie, you start looking around. Oh, gee, I see how that works. Oh, this light comes. It's a crude analogy, but something like that. So this is what spiritual practices do. They are antidotes for our delusion. It's like when you get sick and you have symptoms, you take medicine. It relieves the symptoms. Maybe it doesn't even cure the disease yet, but if you have uh, severe symptoms, very often the first thing they have to do is deal with the symptoms. When I had my gallbladder out, I had an infection on top of it, so they couldn't just go operate on me right away. So they gave me penicillin to bring down the infection and the fever, and then they operated on me. And spiritual practices work that way. And for most people, they're very necessary. It is true. There have been times in history where people have just woken up. doesn't happen very often. Most of us need to do these practices to start to dismantle the story of I so that our attention starts to become somewhat free from its captivity. This is why, even though Meister Eckhart says God is hidden in ways, elsewhere he says... No one can be sure of the experience of this birth. That's his word for realization. No one can be sure of the experience of this birth or even approach it except by the expenditure of a great deal of energy. It is impossible without a complete withdrawal of the senses 
from the world of things, and a great force is required to cause them to cease functioning. And this is why even though Longchenpa, who said, sought after truth is found by not seeking it, elsewhere also says, the unexcelled Buddhahood is impossible to attain until one completes the paths and stages, because it is necessary that the defilements of the different levels be abandoned and the virtues need to be achieved. Today, there are people who say that even without relying on the paths and stages, Buddhahood will be attained, and that without completion of the accumulations and purifications of obstructions, the path and stages and enlightenment will be achieved. It is clear that they are possessed by someone else. And then the footnote tells you this is Mara, who is the personification of delusion. Therefore, one should endeavor in the training of the pure stages and paths. To practice Dharma with efforts from the heart is essential. And this is why even though Ramana Maharshi said, make no effort, your effort is the bondage, Elsewhere, he also said, sadhanas, sadhanas is a Sanskrit term for practices, sadhanas are needed so long as one has not realized it. They are for putting an end to <coughs> obstacles. Finally, there comes a stage when a person feels helpless, notwithstanding the sadhanas. He is unable to pursue the much-cherished sadhanas also. It is then that God's power is realized. The self reveals itself. So this is interesting, particularly this last thing that Ramana Maharshi says, because he indicates also the final function of practices. Notice he says there comes a period where the practitioner is unable to pursue the sadhanas. That does not mean that you chose to give them up. You said, I don't think I'll practice. This is too hard. And besides, these other teachers tell me I don't need to do these practices, so I think I'll drop them. But when you practice to the point that you cannot practice anymore, then the practice itself exhausts the effort to practice. You understand? It's like a a judo trick. The seeking exhausts the seeking. The searching exhausts the searching. You get to a point where there is nothing more to seek for, nothing more you can see to search for. Then the mind spontaneously returns to its source and recognition can occur. So, what these contemporary teachers say is true, but they also tend to take it out of context. All the great original Advaita and Dzogchen masters talk about this as being the highest stage of practice, the most advanced kind of teaching. They never said you don't need to do anything else. When you get to a certain point, though, then the instruction, just be still, call off the search, stop seeking then that starts to make sense, if it's connecting with your experience of not being able to, in fact, do any more practice. Now, finally, how do you know when you're ready for this advanced practice? Well, here's what uh, Shankara, the founder of Advaita, says. Of the stages to liberation, the first is declared to be complete detachment from all things which are non-eternal. Then comes the practice of tranquility, self-control, and forbearance. And then the entire giving up of all actions which are done from personal self-desire. He who has completely overcome attachment is ready for the state of liberation. Now, it's interesting to take a teaching like this as a mirror, and you look into the mirror, and you ask yourself, well, am I completely detached from all things that are not eternal? Have I practiced tranquility, self-control, and forbearance? Have I entirely given up all actions which are done from some personal selfish desire? If that's all true of you, you're ready for these teachings. Don't bother going back and doing any concentration practice and don't try to practice any moral precepts or anything. You are ready. But if not, take note. And in the meantime, I think the best advice 
that I know of. It comes from a Sufi named Hafiz. And he says, although union with the beloved is never given as a reward for one's efforts, strive, O heart, as much as you are able. Well, I hope this uh, puts those kinds of teachings into context for you. It's not that they're wrong, but you look at your life and don't fall into this uh, confusion about what should I be doing? Oh, well, should, maybe I should be practicing. Well, maybe I shouldn't be practicing. As though these are two different kinds of teachings or different approaches to the spiritual path. All teachings on the spiritual path are stage-specific. And you need to do whatever teaching you need to do wherever you are. And you can't do anything else but that anyway. So it's very nice. It works out. <laughs> Sometimes a teacher can reflect back to you where you are in talking and so forth. A teacher can be very helpful and suggest practices. Sometimes you know from your own experience. You just find a practice. You know that it's right for you. But if you are struggling with these practices of being still and then getting all confused and frustrated, then... <clears throat> Don't be uh, proud and arrogant and say, well, I don't want to go back to kindergarten and start these other practices. Be honest with yourself and take up your practice. And whatever you do, do it with aspiration. Whether it's aspiring to strive or not to strive, do it with strong aspiration, strong curiosity, strong love, strong devotion. All right, well, we will not see you next Sunday, but we will see you, those of you who are going to be here on Christmas Day, 11 o'clock, a uh, special little service. We'll have some cookies and stuff like that and uh, some music, as Gene uh, mentioned, some live music. And then we'll be open again when January 7th, was it? Anyway, that Sunday, whatever it is, we'll be showing a video. So until we see you again, happy holidays, happy new year, joy to the world.